Hello, and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I'm Lucas Stock. And I am Spooky Jens Nelson. This is a very scary podcast dedicated to journeying together on the dark and spooky road that is the Christian faith. I don't don't know, that didn't work as well as I thought it would. I wasn't reading ahead. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. Well, in case you couldn't tell by the theme song and the title and the uh, very dramatic and uh, well-scripted intro, we are continuing on. It is October 2022. It's actually October 8th as we're recording this, uh, but not as we're releasing it. And that means we are back for or continuing our third annual, which is, I don't think I've ever been a part of something that's had a third annual of it, but the third annual heresy month here in Spooktober on the Doxology podcast. We are going to continue our slightly reworked format uh, of looking at a different heresy um, or heretical movement. And as we kind of talked a little bit about at the beginning of last week's episode, that term might differ in how we apply it. But as we go through each episode, you'll see what we're talking about and we'll hopefully do a good job of explaining it. Uh, and then we're going to kind of mash in what we used to do, which was have a separate episode dedicated to a biography of the founder or major figure or figures of whatever heretical movement we were talking about. But um, we're going to kind of add that into the actual Tuesday release full episode uh, to kind of give one big picture of whichever movement group belief system, doctrine, whatever that we're talking about, which today is the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, we see, in some ways, a really logical kind of topic to cover. Um, I don't believe we've ever really talked about them on air in any detail. Um, we did uh, before, in a prior October, uh, many moons ago, we did talk about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, And I know growing up, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses uh, in some ways are kind of lumped together in terms of, you know, they're kind of Christians, maybe, I don't know. They're they're kind of cults, maybe, I don't know. Uh, They're different, I know that. Uh, They, you know, I don't believe what they believe, I know that. And that's kind of a vague sense to, to have about to very sizable uh, groups of, of people. I mean, just the, I didn't know this, but the Jehovah's Witness worldwide, there are eight, like 8.8 million Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I think they have 119,000-something um, congregations, kingdom halls, as they call them. Um, so, you know, just in terms of sheer size, like not an insignificant group of people worldwide, not just in America. Um, and also people that... A lot of non-Jehovah's Witnesses and non, you know, religious or theology uh, studies people are aware of them through both Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are known for, you know, sort of door-to-door evangelism, very public outreach um, in different ways, uh, literature, all that kind of stuff. Um, So... It's always kind of, you know, there's always there's always jokes in movies or TV shows or, um, you know, even like comic acts and stuff like that, or always some kind of awareness. A lot of people have probably had some kind of face-to-face conversation with a Jehovah's Witness at some point, um, or I shouldn't say probably, but it's very likely that somebody listening has for sure. And yeah, so we wanted to do a little bit of a more uh, detailed exploration um, into what the Jehovah's Witness movement is, how it started, who started it, talk a little bit about the history as well as some distinctive um, beliefs. We talked a little bit about this before Hidden Record. Um, You know, I mentioned, and there's a similar thing with with Mormonism, Latter-day Saints, is like a lot of people will call the Jehovah's Witnesses a cult, and there are are reasons for that. Um, Some are probably not very well thought out. Some are probably pretty well thought out. Um, We're not really going to get into that because of the nature of our podcast and the nature of this episode. We're 
we're approaching this conversation like we did with the Church of um, Latter-day Saints around the the a, a theological Christian evaluation and critique of the Jehovah's Witnesses doctrine, practice, beliefs, etc. So that's where we're going to be approaching it, and that is not us trying to ignore anything. It's us trying to be fair and objective in our own way, and also just stick to what we do on this show. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. I've talked for a while, um, so I'm going to kick it over to you to any throw in any other introductory remarks that you have that I missed, or to get us started uh, at sort of the beginning of the JW story. Yeah. No, I, I like that we, we started that way. I know that this 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 could be an episode that took hours. This you know this could easily rival our um, you know baptism episode, our tulip episode, like some of those that stretch close to two hours. We could spend an entire month, you know, hour and a half each week talking about the different aspects of uh, Jehovah's Witness, their their theology, their their problems. Um, but like you've said, that that's not our angle. That's not our goal. We what we want to do is as as Christians who who find things like orthodoxy and um, uh, you know the the great tradition and theological diversity, yet the unity that we have as siblings in Christ. Like we want to explore those things. That's what we say in our intro every week. And so. Uh, for something like this, where many people think of Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses um, or other such groups as almost other sects within Christianity, um, well, I, I mean, I obviously am of the opinion that they're not. It's not like another denomination like Methodist or Baptist or whatever. That I think that these are distinct, and let me tell you why. That's, that's how I approached this episode, and so... Um, the way that I'm choosing to start is by sort of highlighting the the key central first figure, if you will, um, who happens to be a gentleman named Charles Taze Russell. So Mr. Russell here was an American. He was a Christian restorationist minister from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Shout out to all of you Pennsylvanians. And he is the founder of what is known as the Bible Student Movement, uh, and if you're interested in this little tidbit, he was also an early Christian Zionist. Um, so to give you some more background, he was born February 16th, 1852. So some of the things I've already said should pique interest for some of you is like the fact that he was American, uh, that he was born in 1852, and that, you know, he started out as a, a Christian minister. Um in July of 1879, he began publishing a, a monthly religious magazine called Zion's Watchtower and Herald of Christ's Presence. Um, and a couple years later, he co-founded Zion's Watchtower Tract Society with William Henry Conley as the president. And then in 1884, the corporation was officially registered with, with Russell as the president. So, you know, he's writing lots of books, lots of articles, lots of tracts, pamphlets, sermons, totaling approximately 50,000 printed pages, which again, for the late 1800s is pretty absurd to me, at least I think. Um, so from 1886 to 1904, he published a sixth volume Bible study series originally titled Millennial Dawn, later renamed The Studies in the Scriptures. Um, nearly 20 million copies of which were printed and distributed around the world in several languages during his lifetime. So again, pretty unreal like output for this dude who's living in an era like I could see these numbers today where we have modern printing presses, modern distribution, but like in the early 1900s, like to me that just blows my mind that like this this volume was moving. Um but I think that says something. I mean, on the one hand, either this guy's already just incredibly wealthy and is just choosing to publish th this volume, like or this um, this many things, simply because he can and he hopes that it reaches somebody, or lots and lots and lots of people are interested in what he's saying. But that's 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 at, at, at least worth noting. And I think something else worth noting is that my great great grandfather was born in, or maybe great, I forget how many greats, but I. He he was born in 1900, and when I was born in 1994, he was still alive. So, like, relatives that lived in the 1900s, early 1900s, that I was alive to at least quote-unquote know, were alive 
during this dude's lifetime too. So just to like put it in perspective, how recent this is that the that this guy was was active. Um, he was described though as uh, a charismatic figure. But interestingly, I find this fascinating, especially based on what I said last week, but he claimed no special revelation or vision for his teaching, which I think is really key because I, I, I said last week that many like many culty, culty groups, many uh, people who who sort of birth these new uh, movements, they claim some sort of special revelation. You know, God spoke to me directly. I found gold tablets or uh, I saw something in a vision, uh, but he says like no special authority. Like he he stated that he did not seek to found a new denomination, but instead he wanted to gather those who were seeking the truth of God's word during what he called harvest time. So like on the one hand, that's pretty you know admirable that this guy who did have some weird teachings wasn't claiming any sort of you know apostolic authority or special revelation. Um, he wrote that the, quote, clear unfolding of truth within his teaching was due to the simple fact that God's due time has come. And he said, if I did not speak and no other agent could be found, the very stones would cry out. So he thought that he was living in a very, like, particular, special era of, of church history where things were happening at such a fast pace and, and stuff was going down. Uh, such that, like, I if it wasn't me saying these things, the rocks would cry these things out. Um, so he viewed himself uh, and other Christians anointed with the Holy Spirit as, quote, God's mouthpiece and an ambassador of Christ. So he was just trying to do what he thought was was the legit thing to do. Um, from from like a, a just a general, if you were just to fly over his life, you might think he's just you know somewhat of a, a more charismatic preacher in the early 1900s. Um, it's really when you start to dive into some of the like specifics of his his theology and his thinking that it gets a little bit more uh, peculiar, a little strange. Uh, there's a lot of like strange theology, some of which I'll cover here. Um, but as we'll come to see, like in his passing and like that society that Zion's Watchtower. Um, like it's after his death that things start to get real kooky and, and Lucas is going to talk more about that. But a couple of things that I thought would be worth highlighting is that Russell's, um, scriptural interpretations were different from Catholics, different from many Protestants in these key areas. So one is hell. So he had said that there was a heavenly resurrection of 144,000 righteous, as well as a quote, great multitude but he believed that the remainder of mankind slept in death awaiting an earthly resurrection rather than suffering in a literal hell. So kind of interesting a view of, you know, afterlife, death, and hell. Uh, on the Trinity, he believed that the, that the divinity of Christ um, was, I mean, he believed in the divinity of Christ, but it differed from what we would call orthodox teaching, saying that he received his divinity as a gift from the Father after dying on the cross. So instead of having divinity throughout his whole life, it was a gift that was imparted on him only after he died on the cross. He also taught that the Holy Spirit is not a person, but the manifestation of God's power. So some some iffy teachings on the Trinity. Um, one that I found really fascinating had to do with Christ's second coming. He believed that he had returned visibly in October of 1874. I mean, come on. Uh, I don't know where or when or how, like there's, I didn't get to see any of that, but again, October of 1874, Christ's, uh, Christ appears bodily and has been ruling from heaven ever since that date. So he believed that a time of trouble began that would then mark a gradual deterioration of civilized society leading up to the end of the quote Gentile times with a climactic multinational attack on a restored Israel. Um, and so uh, you got to remember like world geopolitics, even during this time we're, we're approaching, uh, you know, the night early 1900s, world war one, eventually we'll obviously get to world war two. Um, but after the outbreak of world war one in July of 1914, uh, he interpreted 1914 as the beginning of Armageddon. Um, so these, these, these massive wars going on, he sees as like the beginning of the end times. Um, and then I think just lastly here, this is just like kind of kooky, but I, I'm sort of interested in it. Uh, the Wikipedia entry calls this pyramidology. I don't know if you read this or if you've heard of this, but 
uh, he taught, um, and this is following the views of people like John Taylor, Charles Smith, Joseph Seiss, I don't know who those people are, but he believed that the Great Pyramid of Giza was built by the Hebrews uh, under God's direction. Um, and so he... <laughs> he, he I, it, this is like super weird but he he adopted some of the terminology from other people that had had talked about pyramidology referring to the pyramid as the bible in stone so he held that certain biblical texts including isaiah 19 19 through 20 prophesied a future understanding of the great pyramid he believed that the pyramid's various ascending and descending passages represented biblical concepts such as the fall of man the provision of the mosaic law the death of christ the exaltation of the saints in heaven so calculations were based on the assumption that each inch of the various passages represented one year. So dates such as 1874, um, 1914, 1918 were reportedly emerged from the study of this monument. So some of these dates that he talked about, um, you know, the, the, the Armageddon, um, what was the man, what was that one in 19, uh, just, I guess some of the, some of the beginning of these things, like him, him going out and, and, and talking about these, these issues, um, were interpretations that he gathered from the great pyramid of, of Giza. So really strange, uh, an interesting dude. I don't know what to make of him outside of, uh, of some of those things, because again, we could, we could spend an entire month talking about people like this. I mean, he, this, unlike our, our person that we talked about last week, I found a lot of information about, about Charles Taze Russell, but I think suffice it to say We've covered a general overarching idea of who this guy was, uh, where he was, what he believed, how that differed from, you know, Catholics and Protestants of his era, how it maybe differs a little bit from even today. And so I think now is a good segue into the person that you were going to cover before we dive into, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses world in general today. Yeah. And this is where I think, like... We need to talk about both of these figures because we don't really get the the, the full story from Russell's uh, ministry and life and work and thought and what we know as Jehovah's Witnesses today without the guy who kind of came after Russell's death, whose name was Joseph Franklin Rutherford. He, um, there was without getting bogged down in the details, there was kind of, after Russell's death, there was kind of a little bit of a, of a what we might call a power struggle in terms of the, um, the Bible student movement and the societies and the publishing places like Watchtower and, and, and um, the Tract Society and everything that, you know, like these things often go, there's some, you know, contention and tug of war between who's going to take over. And basically Rutherford ended up being um, the new president, but his um, personality and style of leadership, as well as just his, his being the president caused a lot of people to leave, um, to kind of split off, do their own thing. Um, But without, again, getting bogged down in those details, uh, what's interesting is how a lot of the, distinctive pieces of what it means to be a Jehovah's Witness today either either come from or get kind of started underneath Rutherford's leadership, not Russell's leadership. Um, for example, some like more superficial things like the name Jehovah's Witnesses, the name Kingdom Hall, um, practices, which we might talk about a little bit later more, but like not celebrating Christmas or Easter or uh, birthdays, not um, not uh, like voting or or saying the the uh, pledge of allegiance or singing the national anthem, saluting uh, national flags, things like that. Um, a lot of distinctive things come from Rutherford directly, um, as as in they were changes from what was going on before. Or he kind of develops or tweaks things that were going on before under Russell. Um, and he had a, a long uh, career as the, as the uh, 
I guess you could say the leader of the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, he took over as the, um, I forget what the organization was called at the time. Um, he, he basically took over as the president of the Watchtower um, Society in 1917. Uh, and he remained in charge until his death in 1942. And it was during this time that first, because of a lot of the changes and, and, and the tweaks and the developments that were going on, a lot of people left during the 1920s. Um, but by the time he died, uh, the, the movement was way bigger than, than it was before. And uh, it, it, at that point, had, it had become a worldwide uh, movement, a, world, a worldwide religious movement. Um, and yeah, some of the changes he made, like they, they're probably a lot more significant, the deeper you get into Jehovah's witness history. Um, or if you are a Jehovah's witness, you might like recognize the importance of this, but he did a few, a few things, uh, like he moved that date of Christ's invisible return, um, that Russell had set at, what was it? 1874, um, and he, he moved that to 1914. So 1914 was already a really significant date uh, in Jehovah's Witness theology, but he made it kind of even more important <laughs> uh, in, in the sense that um, that was when this invisible return of Christ, where he is now reigning like over the kingdom of God. Um, I forget. I, I don't know if that's the best way to put it, but basically that's what it, that's what's going on there. Um, he moved it to then. He also continued this this very, we could say, prolific publishing aspect of Jehovah's Witness uh, practice. Um, he himself wrote 21 books. And uh, in 1942, the Watchtower Society basically credits Rutherford with distributing worldwide over 400 million books and booklets. So that's not that's not just his books, but copies of his books, copies of Russell's books, booklets, magazines, um, journals, all that kind of stuff. Um, which a lot as you might know, the the Watchtower Society, you know, continues to this day publishing magazines and books um, as well as the Jehovah's Witness Bible translation, the New World translation. Um, and yeah, like I said, overall membership increased more than sixfold by the time he uh, passed away. Um, one little one little thing. It's not necessarily super relevant, but he uh, one of the things he did was he he oversaw this building of in in California of this in, in a neighborhood of San Francisco this huge mansion um, that was meant to be for um, the patriarchs who were going to, uh, return from the dead to kind of lead the new world, um, like government underneath, under Jesus's reign. Um, they were supposed to come in 1925. They didn't, um, they kept the mansion though. And he kind of used it as like, uh, a resident, like the headquarters, um, and a residence for Rutherford, um, one of the things that, in, in addition to building the mansion, he also had like a a big fancy yellow Cadillac, uh, which was supposed to handle the transportation needs of the patriarchs when they returned. But they didn't return, but he did keep the Cadillac. So I think you can kind of see a, just in a few, like not trying to, to be, you know, disrespectful, but I think you can see even in these brief overviews, in just a few small details, the personality differences between Russell and Rutherford, um, and and it's interesting to to kind of try to imagine, like if if Russell had come second, or if Rutherford hadn't been um, elected president of the Watchtower Society. It's interesting to imagine what differences uh, in terms of culture, in terms of doctrine, in terms of practice that Jehovah's Witnesses would would look like today. You know, if there was a more uh, Russellite version of Jehovah's Witnesses versus a more Rutherfordish one that, that we see. Um, but despite all the things that, like, people have, have at the time as well as since his death, like, pointed out as, you know, 
to detract from Rutherford's legacy, um, the movement grew. You know, like like whatever he was doing worked in, in the sense of he he continued to attract people to the message, um, and it wasn't just him. You know, um, but and I think I think a large part of that uh, you can look at this you know as a good thing or a bad thing I guess depending on your perspective. But um, the sort of door to door, you know, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, you have to go out and witness. Um, that also is something that he kind of innovated and started as a, like a requirement um, that the, that the members of, of the society and then later when he changed the name to Jehovah's Witnesses were, were, were required to do. Um, so since then, I mean, the short of it is Jehovah's Witnesses haven't gone anywhere. You know, they, they, they like we said, there's like 8.8 .8 million members worldwide. Um, like we said, also, you've probably encountered or at least know someone who has encountered them face-to-face -face in terms of their evangelism. Um, but I guess the question, the next question is, what what exactly is the message? Um, what exactly is the distinctive uh, beliefs? Like, let's say that they are a brand of Christianity. Why would you be that kind of Christian as opposed to another kind of Christian? Um, and the reason I frame it that way is because that is how they view themselves. Um, they on, on JW.org, which is the official website, um, there is a page that have like that like fifteen key beliefs, and they're just short little descriptions. Um, so we, I figured we could kind of use this as the basis of our like discussion of their doctrine, because this is what they, in very simple terms, put forward to the public on their official site as this is who we are. And the opening sentence is: As Jehovah's Witnesses, we strive to adhere to the form of Christianity that Jesus taught and that His apostles practiced. So that's the that's that's important. That's how they see themselves, or at least that's how they describe themselves, right? Um, and that's that's why it's important to listen to people in their own words. But that's why I think it's appropriate for us to talk about Jehovah's Witnesses. Again, similarly, they're 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 different groups. They're they're very different, but similarly to how we talked about the Church of um, Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints a couple years ago. Um, in the context of Heresy Month, these are people who are self-identifying as Christians, um, very explicitly, and not just oh, you know, we we are inspired by by you know certain Christian beliefs, but no, we are we are striving to adhere to the form of Christianity that Jesus taught. So very, very, very important to keep that in mind. Some of these key beliefs are going to sound more controversial than others. Some are going to sound like pretty innocuous. Um, and some are even going to be um, not just like not crazy sounding, but pretty good. Um, and there's, there's references to, to scripture throughout um, we're not going to read all of these. There are a couple that we want to point out, um, that I want to point out, and that we want to to focus on. Um, one thing, uh, kind of going back to what you mentioned about Russell's teaching on the afterlife, they are annihilationists. They don't believe in hell. Um, there will be the resurrection um, of the righteous. Um, a this, I'm quoting their website at this point. A relatively small num number of people, 144,000, will be resurrected to life in heaven to rule with Jesus in the kingdom. Um, people who die pass out of existence. They do not suffer in a fiery hell of torment. God will bring billions back from death by means of a resurrection. However, those who refuse to learn God's ways after being raised to life will be destroyed forever with no hope of a resurrection. Um, so you have a very clear annihilationism, which is really interesting. Um, I don't really have more to say about that. Just, just in terms of, um, it's it's interesting how central that is in their distinctive, uh, their doctrinal distinctives, um, and I also don't really have more to say about that, just because that's that's a whole topic in itself. Um, definitely, it definitely not uh, not unique in the Christian world, um, but also pretty clearly not uh, not the traditional mainstream. Uh, Christian affirmation when it comes to death and hell and the afterlife, uh, and it's not it's not negotiable for them. So, um, and where we will probably spend the most of the rest of this time, I would imagine, um, 
although that might not be true necessarily, is what they believe about Jesus. Um, because that's where the rubber kind of hits the road as far as a Christian understanding of the beliefs of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, their third point in this 15-point sort of statement of faith, so to speak, is we follow the teachings and example of Jesus Christ and honor him as our Savior and as the Son of God. Thus, we are Christians. However, we have learned from the Bible that Jesus is not Almighty God and that there is no scriptural basis for the Trinity doctrine. So, we are Christians. We're trying to do the Christianity that Jesus and the apostles taught. Jesus is not God. Um very clear. One thing I like about the Jehovah's Witnesses is they know what they believe. <laughs> like at least in terms of their their literature, they they know what they believe and they're they're not like afraid of it in the sense of trying to like dance around it. Um, they are expressing a f- what they are calling a form of Christianity that is more true, but a f- they're calling it a form of Christianity um, because Jesus is their savior, the son of God. Okay, I agree with that. Uh, but he's not God. Obviously, I disagree with that. Um, and if you're a Christian and you don't disagree with that, go listen to State of Theology episode that we did a couple weeks back, uh, or most of the episodes that we've done <laughs> in the history of uh, our podcast. Um, one thing that you might be familiar with, uh, if you've if you've learned much of anything about Jehovah's Witnesses from a sort of more not more, but from a mainstream Orthodox Christian perspective, is um, they've. They've got their own Bible translation, the New World Translation, um, and one of the sort of highlights of that translation, um, from our perspective at least, is how they translate John 1.1, which is probably a well-known verse for, for everyone listening. Um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God is sort of the standard way that a lot of English translations uh, do that. Um, they don't do it that way uh, because that's hard when you don't believe that Jesus is God. They translate it as, um, and the word was a God, with like a lowercase g. Um, and they have they have a, a helpful page that's all about describing or, or explaining what's going on with John 1.1. And they've got this list of misconceptions um, that they, they say um, that um, basically the misconceptions are um, that the verse teaches that the word is the same as Almighty God, and they go on. Um, I don't want to get. I don't want to just read a bunch of stuff, but their their description, their answers, and their what they're saying, I think, is really important to sort of my conclusion about Jehovah's Witnesses, which I'll make here shortly. But the statement "the word was with God" indicates that two separate persons are discussed in the verse. It is not possible for the word to be with God and at the same time be God Almighty. The context also confirms that the word is not Almighty God. John 1.18 states that no man has seen God at any time. However, people did see the word, Jesus. For John 1.14 states that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we had a view of his glory. Um, They also say that there's a misconception that this verse says that the word has always existed. Not Jesus, but the word itself. Their, their uh, fact that they give, the beginning referred to in this verse cannot mean the beginning of God because God had no beginning. Jehovah God is from everlasting to everlasting, Psalm 90. However, the word, Jesus Christ, did have a beginning. He is the beginning of the creation by God. Uh, that's a quote from Revelation 3. Um, now, they say he's not God. They say he's a different person, but they translate it as a God, to be fair to them. They're not polytheists. Um, they are using God, lowercase g, in um, a, a, a certain sense that, that doesn't refer to God like Jehovah, God like the God of Israel, as we would say, um, but saying that God, um, they're, they're, they point back to Hebrew El Elohim, um, which which they say basically carries this sense of mighty one, and, and they point to instances where it's used um, not only for God, but also like other gods, like pagan gods, or even like powerful humans that are that God is working, whatever. Um, that's, that's fair. They're, they're not polytheists um, in English. That can be a tricky um, distinction to make. Um, 
with, you know, our word for God is God, but it's also our word for other gods. So it can be a little bit confusing to, to communicate that nuance just in writing out the word. Um, but that is, that's where I mainly want to camp out is the fact that um, what they're describing, if you've listened to our podcast for a while, um, you know, kind of a pop quiz for the eagle-eared listeners out there, but um, it shouldn't sound, it shouldn't sound that unfamiliar, or at least maybe I should say it should be ringing some bells. But, uh, you know, I'll leave a little bit of suspense for what I mean there and see if there's anything else you wanted to highlight that that doesn't directly have to do with, with uh, their their Christology, we might say, um, or just anything that comes to mind uh, in hearing their, their, you know, what they believe about Jesus that, that you wanted to, that stood out to you or you wanted to touch on. Yeah, not, not in particular... I guess about Jesus. I mean, there are, there are things we'll say, but I, I just, there are a couple of things that I wanted to highlight that I, that I personally found just intriguing, uh, about Jehovah's witnesses, generally speaking. And, and this, this is on the Wikipedia page, it, like on the, if you go to the, you know, Jehovah's witnesses on the right hand side, there's like this big column where there's like, you know, organizational structure, history, demographic people, um, and then formative influences, and what I found really interesting in that formative influences tab, uh, some of the names that appear, one of which is John Nelson Darby. Um, so if you're familiar at all with with John Nelson Darby, he was um, uh, he lived in England. He was a, they describe him as an Anglo-Irish Bible teacher. Um, he was a primary influential figure in the Plymouth Brethren. Um, but the, the biggest thing that I find interesting about John Nelson Darby in particular is that he is the father, quote unquote, of modern dispensationalism and futurism. So he pre-tribulation rapture theology, um, was popularized extensively by John Nelson Darby and his, his close associates, I guess. And then especially made popular in the 20th century, uh, with the Schofield reference Bible. Um, so like dispensationalism within Christianity is itself like a, a, you know, a, a, a wing, so to speak. Um, you know, having Lucas and I having been moody graduates, we are more than familiar with dispensationalism. I don't think either of us would subscribe to dispensationalism, but what I just find fascinating is that like, all of this stuff is going on. Like, so, uh, you know, these two guys that we've talked about, um, Charles Taze Russell and Joseph Franklin Rutherford, like their work, the things that they're doing, the world that they lived in is it, like the, the dispensationalist movement is, is exploding at the same time. And so what we get out of that, I think at least, you know, based on some of the doctrinal, um, you know, highlights of the, the JW world is like, they, in a sense, they are like pretty dispensational, even if it isn't the same as what we would, you know, it's not the same as modern dispensationalism, but a lot of their theology, a lot of the way that they uh, look at the world, the way that they interpret things, like it's not all that different from that world. And so I, I find that at least like intriguing being somebody again, who, who was at Moody, who, was ingrained, I think, in that sort of world for a while. Um, like just seeing some of those similarities is 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 worth noting. Um, did you have something you want to add on on that point? Just like it that that I didn't know that if there's I don't know if the, how direct the connection is, but I think it's very obvious the shared sort of interest in um, predicting you know, end times events, seeing events described in Revelation as sort of impending in these, in these tumultuous world events, like for, um, for the Jehovah's Witnesses, like World War Two, or I mean, World War One, um, and then later, World War Two, but um, uh, a concern with, with a return of the Jewish people to Palestine, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like you can see, like you said, it's not like, oh, Jehovah's Witnesses are, are part of the capital D dispensationalist movement. Um, but you do see these 
it seems it seems very believable to me. You can kind of see the Venn diagram of the shared interests between those two groups in terms of the way that they're looking at end times and uh, biblical prophecy and things like that. So I find that that I agree that's super fascinating. Yeah. So there's there's definitely at the very least like a, an overlap, uh, an interplay, um, similarities, like you said. Um, the other thing I wanted to highlight is simply the fact. Um, so, so this comes from Robert Lethem, who shout out to our boy that we never mention anymore. But we, we Lucas and I used to always mention his systematic theology published by Crossway. Um, in his chapter seven, he's talking about scripture and tradition. And he's talking about the, the meaning of those words. You know, what is tradition? It refers to that which has been passed on or handed down. Um, you know, talking about their different traditions of, of uh, different um, denominations, for example. But then he says, a group arose in the 19th century that wanted to jettison church traditions and the edicts of church councils and get back to the simplicity of the Bible. They published the journal uh, Studies in the Scriptures. We know them now as the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, such a cry is shorthand for a desire to dispense with the accumulated biblical exegesis of the history of the church and replace it with one's own. So that that to me is another interesting bit about um, Jehovah's Witnesses in particular, but other groups generally speaking, is that idea of wanting to quote-unquote jettison or do away with tradition uh, the, the the things that are handed down from, uh, you know, the, the centuries of, of, of church history and really just like focus on like this own thing. Um, like that's not unique to Jehovah's Witnesses. That's not unique to really any group, but it is uh, an indicator of a, a more serious problem. Those that want to distance themselves from orthodoxy, from tradition, um, often find themselves where we now find Jehovah's Witnesses, where they've gone uh, severely away from, uh, you know, what mo uh, what most Christians would believe and affirm today. Um, so those those are just like, again things that I think are are worth highlighting, worth showing the differences between what we might consider, you know, Protestants and Catholics today uh, over and against these these Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and, you know, I, there are a couple things, too, that when reading, I was like, man, like, I do like these aspects of, of Je Jehovah's Witness teaching. And what I mean is, like, their conscientious objection to military service, the refusal to salute state symbols like national anthems and flags, um, uh, you know, some other other things. Like, I think that those are at least admirable or, or things that are worth noting, like for for a for a christian to to i i mean i know lots of christians that are this way but um like like what what do we do with with war what do we do like is there such a thing as just war like i know augustine's my homeboy and all but like maybe augustine was wrong maybe there isn't such a thing as a just war i don't know um if we're going to talk about you know we've had episodes about christian nationalism about um you know things related but like saluting you know saluting a flag standing for a national anthem like are those things that christians should do well jehovah's witnesses would say no whereas many christians i was a part of many of these types of churches where there's a christian flag and then there's an american flag on the you know on the stage we we stand and salute for both um and what's the you know i think we're seeing some of the uh the, the root of that fruit, so to speak, today, I think we're seeing in some of our, our political discourse and some of our um, so social media engagements online centering around Christian nationalism in particular, like, I think that those are, are, are dangerous things. And often, in especially in the world we find ourselves in currently, like, it can be difficult to differentiate between uh, uh, the church and politics at times. And you know, so again, I, I found it interesting that that was such a, um, like a strong force in the theology of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Like I came across it a couple of times, like the things that are, that they're adamant about, like you can't associate with this thing. And like, for example, during World War II, like Jehovah's Witnesses, I believe were labeled with like a purple triangle. Um, so like when they were sent to concentration camps, that's how they were identified. And the reason being is like, they wouldn't, even if they were German, they would not participate in the war effort. They wouldn't do the things that they were being called to do as, you know, citizens of Germany. And so they too were sent to concentration camps. Um, 
so it's like, man, that's that's a pretty like that that's a, a bold thing to do, especially when you consider the the stakes, right? So I don't know. I, I yeah, I, I um you took this class as well, I believe, with um doctors McDuffie and Radelnik at Moody on the Holocaust and sort of like um th- there was a big a much broader scope of of sort of um not just dealing with you know theology in the shadow of Auschwitz but also like dealing with um anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism in, in theological um Christian theology and Christian history but point is I believe in that class which is where I learned what you just shared um which is what reminded me of it is um, if I remember correctly, as, uh, there there are no recorded instances of a Jehovah's Witness dur- who who was you know condemned by the by the by the Third Reich as seditious political opponent whatever and sent to sent to imprisoned sent to concentration camps. Um, all they had to do was recant because they were there for their their you know anti war stance or whatever. They weren't there for their for their race or or whatever. Um, they weren't even directly there for their religion in the sense of they had to stop being, um, you, you know, like um, they, they basically just had to give up that belief. And there's no, as far as I know, there is no uh, recorded instance of a single Jehovah's Witness in the concentration camps doing that. Um, but instead standing, you know, standing against, against that. And I think that what's remarkable is what's so important is they are they they come out of the restorationist movement they they you know no creed but the bible we're trying to do christianity the way jesus taught and and you read those you read those affirmations right and what do you get you get a horrible understanding of jesus completely wrong um and you get some really some really firm uh ethical commitments you get some theology you know a, a commitment to 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 um the God of Israel being the one true God. Um, and you're like, man, how, how can you say some things that are spot on and some things that are so wrong? And I think the, the, the answer is exactly what you brought up um, in terms of a desire to distance yourself from tradition uh, for the supposed sake of a greater um, devotion to or greater faithfulness to what is in Scripture. Because the problem is, um, when you are, and I'm, I'm going to say that Jehovah's Witnesses are, when, when you are a, when you are a biblical, when you read the Bible as a fundamentalist, fundamentalist, when you are a biblical fundamentalist, you have no ability, especially over time, to protect yourself from the whims of new or maybe old, but errant readings of scripture, unless you happen to, to see them, right? Um, and the reason that Jehovah's Witnesses are so interesting is because they're, they're so recent, but the, the reason I, I, I wanted to focus in on the way that they defend their views of Jesus and defend their interpretation of John 1.1 is if you're familiar with church history, they're the same arguments that Arius and those, you know, sort of heirs to his tradition made in the fourth century um, when they were saying that Jesus was the son of God because he was created and then given some kind of divinity, that he was the firstborn. They, they read the same verse, the firstborn of creation, and Arius said, see, he's the firstborn of creation. It says it right here. He was the first thing that God made. Um, and reading scripture in that way is is, you know, in the words of the Anglican 39 articles, that's reading scripture, one scripture in a way that is repugnant to the rest of scripture. It's not reading scripture well. It's not just that it goes against some sort of external orthodoxy that we place on scripture. Orthodoxy is orthodox because it is a faithful witness to what scripture teaches and has revealed to us. And that's what you miss out on without a commitment to uh being part of the tradition of Christian orthodoxy in terms of how you do your theology, what your uh, interpretive hermeneutic is, and how you deal with various passages. And that doesn't even begin to get into the fact that, like, the way they translate John 1-1 is actually bad Greek. Like, grammatically, it's incorrect. It's not just about theology. But the point is, they don't have anything that protects them. They don't have anything that informs their reading of scripture. So you're going to get to some, you know, thou shalt not kill. 
Nobody, nobody is going to sit in their room and honestly read the Bible and say, oh, God wants you to murder people. You know, I'm not talking about war. I'm not talking, you know, I'm just saying like, because it's, it, that's a simple, that's a simple passage, right? You, thou shalt not kill. You heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't even get angry at your, you know, like, fine. But then you get into something like, is the Holy Spirit a person or a thing? You get into, what is Jesus's relationship to God the Father? Those things are less immediately obvious, not because they're hidden or convoluted or require some kind of mental gymnastics or because there's no biblical basis for the doctrine of the Trinity or something like that, but because they are more nuanced and complicated um, pieces of the scriptural witness. And they don't have the, they, meaning the Jehovah's Witnesses, don't have the guardrails. They don't have the, the, they're trying to blaze a new path when there's already a path that's been well paved. And to, to finish my interpretation of what it means to be a Jehovah's Witness, um, I'm going to read the end of the original version of the Nicene Creed. That this was, this was um, expanded and, and the text that was adopted for liturgical use was changed. But the first version of the Nicene Creed says, those who say, talking about Jesus, there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was made, and he was made out of nothing, or he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created, or changeable or alterable, they are condemned by the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. You can disagree, you can have different uh, conclusions, but if you are a apostolic, orthodox, little c Catholic Christian, um, you stand in a tradition that has already dealt with the doctrines of the Jehovah's Witnesses as it pertains to their belief about Jesus, which is that they are almost word for word Arians. They they are, and you know that that term can be misused and all that kind of stuff. But but in the in the broadest sense, they are Arians. They deny Christ his divinity, and we even heard Russell denies the the Holy Spirit's personality, let alone divinity. Um, at which, you know, we don't even have to get into the Holy Spirit. We just get stop at Jesus, and we already have um, such big problems that we we can't. You cannot, in good conscience, um, say that a Jehovah's Witness is is some kind of um, you know mistaken or misled brother or sister. They're not. They have cut themselves off from the body of Christ because they deny Christ's identity, and. That's the prayer and the witness that we should be having for and to Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and that's the problem. And that's why, even though they're striving to be Christian, that's why I feel comfortable describing them as, as a heretical Christian group. Because word for word, since 325 AD, we have had a clear understanding and teaching of what we say about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And in the 1800s, people start deciding, I mean, it's not new, but in the 1800s, some people decide that they aren't very interested in that tradition. And there's nothing that's going to stop them from falling into the same errors that Arius did and that Michael Servetus did and countless people that we don't even know their names in history. But that's, that's the like, that's the stakes and that's the result of that more foundational issue, which you brought up of what is our relationship to tradition? Um, and it's a really big deal. <laughs> it, it's, a, it, it's a life and death deal. What, what you make of Jesus. And um, that's, that's, that's why I want to be, <laughs> I, I want to teach and, and, and believe and adhere to the Christianity that Jesus and the apostles taught, uh, which is why I, I want tradition to protect me. <laughs> right. Um, those guardrails yeah Yeah. i mean man i again we could spend so much time plumbing the depths of all of this i i don't have much more that i I want to add uh i hope some of this has been clear and helpful um if there are things that like are confusing and you want to go do some reading like even just the and it's always like super cliche i remember like as a kid like teachers always said don't go to wikipedia but like more and more these days like wikipedia is pretty like pretty good and you can check all the you know the the citations and whatnot but like read about some of this stuff get an idea um if you live in a city where 
uh, especially Jehovah's Witnesses, are active, like just maybe out of curiosity one day, like go talk to them. Like that, that was always something that, uh, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago that, um, when I was at Moody, one of the practical Christian ministries that we had to do was, um, what we called like gospel outreach or student outreach. Basically we went out into the streets of Chicago and we like talked to different people about God, the Bible, what we believed or whatever. And I always had a hard time approaching random strangers on the street to be like, Hey, can we have a spiritual conversation? Um, so what I would try to do as much as possible was talk to people that were already trying to talk to me. So like, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses are out on the corner with their, you know, carts and tracks and everything, like wanting to talk to people. So I'd be like, perfect. I can go talk to this person. We can engage in dialogue. Or there was this one time where there was a dude in a Spider-Man costume. Uh, like that dude was looking to talk to people. So I talked to him. But like, in, like with Jehovah's Witnesses in particular, um, that, that was something I would often do just because like we would have really interesting conversations. You know, we'd, we'd talk about the, you know, 144,000. We would talk about even Jehovah and like, I don't want to get into it right now. It's going to take too long to explain, but like, I don't think even Jehovah is a good translation of the, the tetragrammaton or, or however you say that the, you know, the four Hebrew letter name for, for God, you know, we might say Yahweh, um, but we'd have conversations about that. We'd have conversations about Christ and his divinity or, you know, I guess the, the differences of uh, belief on his divinity. Um, so like maybe that's something you'd want to do to engage in conversations, not for the purpose of like just bashing on the person or going and trying to like ridicule everything that they believe, but like have a genuine dialogue and see like, why do you believe what you believe? Like, where did that belief come from? Like, have you, were you raised in this you know, tradition where you, did you walk into it because of interest? Like I always found that fascinating, like how people found themselves within the world of Jehovah's Witnesses. Like many of them are born into it. They're raised in it. They're expected to, you know, go out and evangelize and everything. Uh, but that's not the case for everybody. Uh, personally, where the, the town that I grew up in, uh, Janesville, Wisconsin, they had a kingdom hall. So like every once in a while, you know, on the way to the DMV, you drive by the kingdom hall and it always had these really big gates and the gates were almost always closed. And I'd be like, that's a weird church. I didn't realize till years later that it was a kingdom hall. And like, you know, I had a, a friend who, uh, who knew somebody who went there and like, so like just chatting with them about like how, what Jehovah's witnesses believe differed from what I believe. So like all that to say, like this, this idea, this topic, um, was very intriguing. Like I was excited to dive into it, uh, when we proposed it. And now I'm even more intrigued. Not that I, I'm not, I, I just, I wish that I could like, I wish I knew more Jehovah's witnesses now in my life so that we could have conversations about this because I just find it deeply fascinating because these are a people who, you know, claim like we're, like we're trying to say this, uh, this dependency upon Christ and like doing what he taught, um, yet live so differently from, from other Christians. Um, you know, I, I don't know. There's, there's also something to be said for like unwavering devotion, but it, it's crazy to me that often people have unwavering devotion to improper causes. I don't know. So I, now at this point, I'm just rambling. Is there anything else you want to say, my dude, anything you want to add about this, uh, this group? No, just, uh, Read the creed. Confess Read the creed. The creed. Mm. I like that. Yeah. That's that should be a next our next T-shirt. Not that we've ever had any other T-shirts, but that's our next T-shirt. Um, well, without any further ado, we will close this episode with a word of prayer from Psalm 125, and it felt somewhat fitting. You will see why. This says, "Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever." As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people uh, from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Amen. Well... Thank amen you. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this second episode of, uh, of, of heresy month, 2022. Uh, we're so glad that you are here. And I mean, man, I don't know about you, Lucas, but I love the spooky intro. 
like Richie Rust, your friend Richie Rust, who you can find on Apple Music, Spotify, etc. Like when last year when he said that he would create an alternate intro, I was like, oh man, that's gonna sound sweet. And this intro is like, I wish we could use it all year round. It doesn't really fit like the rest of the year, but like it slaps so hard. It's so good. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I do. Um, But anyway, thanks for listening to this episode. Thanks for listening to any episode of the Doxology podcast. If you want to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram uh, at Doxology podcast, or you can send us an email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love your feedback, your questions, episode ideas, uh, whatever, whatever it might be, shoot us a message. Um, we'd love to hear from you. And, you know, as we said, remember, be nice. So when you're on social media, when you're engaging with people in, in person, be nice. But also be nice scene. I mean, it's just simple. I just do it. All right. Please. So please, please, please. Until next time. <laughs> peace. See ya.